We've all heard about wrongfully convicted people going to prison for crimes committed by others. In some cases, DNA exonerates them and finds the person who really did it. But what about people wrongfully convicted of crimes that never happened at all? That's on this episode of Criminal Injustice. Criminal Injustice is a listener-supported project. Become a member at patreon.com slash criminal injustice. Welcome to Criminal Injustice. I'm David Harris, your personal nerd, geek, and guide to all things in the criminal legal system, and still grateful beyond words for that wonderful day job at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. We've heard the phrase now for years, wrongful conviction. It's among the worst catastrophes our justice system can have, a conviction of an innocent person for a crime committed by someone else, with the innocent man or woman going to prison, sometimes even to death row. It's an almost unimaginable fate, arrested, tried, convicted, and punished for something one did not do, and therefore can't and shouldn't apologize for, suffering the most terrible fate our government can hand someone. But we've also learned that, in some cases, things turn out for the better. After years of suffering the indignity and hardship of punishment, the truth is discovered, often through the use of DNA evidence. The convicted person did not do the crime. The evidence points to, sometimes even identifies, someone else. Here's audio of the 2019 release from prison of Lydell Grant, a man wrongfully convicted of a fatal stabbing. The audio is courtesy of KHOU-TV in Houston. Uh, I feel free now. It was a long time coming. I always claim my innocence. And here from the Associated Press are the voices of two men, Stanley Mosey and Dennis Lee Allen, cleared of a murder for which they were convicted and sent to prison after a judge found them actually innocent of the crime, a real rarity. Did you ever give up hope? No, sir. Why not? Because I had God and faith, and I knew the truth would come to life. Are you angry at anybody? No, sir. I hold no animosity towards anyone. So what's your plans now? What do you want to do? I want to be some, a part of some positive, some ministry, do some positive for the community, and help uplift and follow humanity. Because I've tried to stay positive the entire uh, time I was in prison. Throughout this entire ordeal, I never allowed it to consume me with anger or hatred. I stayed positive. It was surreal. Uh, it's no doubt that there are others out there still waiting to be exonerated or waiting to be cleared. Wrongful conviction of a person for the crime committed by someone else is hard to believe until we can actually see the evidence with our own eyes. A crime, often a very serious crime, has occurred. Someone was made to pay, but that someone was the wrong person. But can you imagine this? What if the wrongfully convicted person was in prison not for someone else's crime, but for a crime that actually never even happened? 
Has this ever occurred? Uh, how could it if no crime happened? Well, it is a real thing, and it is actually far more common than you would think. Our guest today is a person with deep experience in the criminal justice system, and she spent years looking at this phenomenon. She's going to educate us and tell us what can be done about it. Jessica Henry is a professor in the Department of Justice Studies at Montclair State University in New Jersey, where she teaches courses on wrongful convictions, criminal law and procedure, the death penalty, and hate crimes. Before entering the academic world, she served as a public defender for 10 years at the Bronx Defenders and the Office of the Appellate Defender. She's the author of a new book, Smoke But No Fire, Convicting the Innocent of Crimes That Never Happened, published in 2020 by the University of California Press. We've got a link to the book up on our website. Jessica Henry, welcome to Criminal Injustice. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, I think a lot of people listening will have a basic idea of what we, what we mean when we, when we say wrongful conviction. A crime is committed, there's a victim, uh, uh, and the police then arrest the wrong person. The wrong person goes to prison. We know that some number of these folks, maybe just a fraction, but some number of them, uh, we eventually find out the conviction was wrong, usually, but not always, from DNA. Sometimes we even get the actual perpetrator identified. But in your book, Smoke But No Fire, uh, you are looking at something else, something related, but not the same. These are wrongful convictions, sure, but convictions for crimes that actually never even happen. And you use this phrase, no crime, wrongful convictions. Tell us what, you, what does that mean, no crime, wrongful convictions? It literally means that there are people who are wrongly convicted of crimes that never happened in the first place. And in fact, when we look at the data that exists about exonerations, we know that no crime wrongful convictions are about one third of all known exonerations. A third? Really? That many? I would never have guessed that. How, what's, what's the basis for one third? And does that translate into some number? So it, I just checked the National Registry of Exonerations, which collects information about known exonerations, and they've been collecting that data since 1989. So according to their database as of last week, there are 986 known no-crime wrongful convictions that resulted in, in an exoneration. But I also want to be clear, that's really just the tip of the iceberg. Um, we don't have a lot of information about no crime cases in the context, for instance, of misdemeanors. Um, and that is a huge number, far greater than I think anyone can ever imagine. Plus, there are many people who have not been exonerated. Plus, we don't have the data before 1989. Right. So there's a, and it also doesn't, account for the people that we just haven't uncovered yet. So 986 is a starting point, but certainly not representative of the full scope of this issue. That is really amazing. You know, and it's the same kind of tip of the iceberg thing for wrongful convictions generally. It, the, we know about the ones we know about. There are plenty that we don't, uh, and we just have to guess at that. And then what you said about misdemeanors, I think people don't realize that misdemeanors make up uh, somewhere between 80 and 90 percent of all criminal cases in the system. Isn't that correct? That is correct. The, um, the Brennan Center actually just issued a wonderful report this month 
um, this is, you know, last week, I think it was talking about the scope of just how many people are brought into our criminal justice system um, who have misdemeanor convictions. It's an astonishing number. I think they said 45 million people in this country have misdemeanor convictions. And not a small number of those people were convicted of crimes that didn't happen, but which they pled guilty to in order to avoid having to return to court and dealing with all of the other consequences that come from fighting a misdemeanor charge. Right. So this is a fairly unusual problem, even if it's a lot bigger than most people know. How did you come across this? How did you learn about it? Where did you discover it? So I teach a course about wrongful convictions. I've been studying criminal justice issues and criminal law for a very, very long time. Um, and in the course of teaching this wrongful convictions class, I was poking around in the National Registry of Exonerations database, as I am wont to do, and I noticed that it appeared one third of all of the all the cases in their database were no crime cases. And I thought that can't possibly be right. So I actually reached out to the NRE, the National Registry of Exonerations, and I said, is that correct? And it was. And once I realized that, I knew I had stumbled onto something that not only I wanted to learn more about, but that I thought really needed to be exposed to the public. Because, yeah, because nobody is aware of just how often this crazy thing occurs. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly what I was going to say. I mean, before looking at your book, I would never have guessed that this was that large a problem. I mean, I knew about this kind of, you know, lurking in the background must be true in some cases, but a third, that really just astonished me. So let's take an example, if you would. Uh, one of the first stories in your book, uh, would you tell us about Rodriguez Crawford? Yeah, it's, I started the book with, with the story of, of Rodriguez Crawford because it's just such an upsetting story all the way around, and it highlights so many of the things that go wrong in our criminal justice system. So Rodriguez Crawford was a 19-year-old young man. He lived in a poor black largely black community in Shreveport, Louisiana. Um, by all accounts, he loved to dance, he, and he adored his young son, Rodirius. And one morning, the unthinkable happened, and his son, uh, when they woke up in the morning, when Rodriguez woke up in the morning, he found his son lifeless in the bed next to him. And the family frantically called 911. And it went south pretty much from the very beginning because the dispatcher who called the paramedics spoke so disparagingly about the family and about what the paramedic could uh, expect to find. And when the paramedic arrived on the scene, instead of calling it the, the victim's home, they referred to it as a crime scene. And they took the little boy's baby and they whisked it off into the ambulance and locked the ambulance doors and called the police instead of telling the family what they had confirmed, which is that the baby was in fact dead. And when the police came, instead of treating Mr. Crawford as the grieving father that he was, they took him to the precinct and started questioning him. This seems like they have everything going in the wrong direction almost from the first minute. From the first, very first minute, the paramedic who arrived not only called it a crime scene, but claimed to see evidence of abuse that never was found by anyone else who looked at the case. And the medical examiner assigned to the case decided that it in fact had been a homicide and that there was, um, it, that it was a death by suffocation. And when the medical labs actually finally came back, they came back after the medical examiner had made this declaration, it showed the baby had pneumonia and sepsis in his lungs. And yet the medical examiner said, oh no, that was not the cause of death, that was incidental. Oh, okay. Now let, let's hang on a second. Pneumonia and sepsis in his lungs. That would have been enough to cause the baby's death, correct? Absolutely. And yet the medical examiner literally 
dismissed it as a, as, as a coincidence and something that was not responsible for this otherwise somewhat inexplicable death. Okay. So then the case goes to trial. What's the evidence against Mr. Crawford? Well, before the case actually goes to trial, I do also want to add one little thing that changed the trajectory the trajectory of the case, and that is the DA to whom the case was assigned. The case got assigned to a man named Dale Cox, and Dale Cox made history um, by proclaiming his affection for the death penalty. And so he charged Mr. Crawford with capital murder and went full steam ahead to do whatever he could to secure this conviction. And the evidence, to answer your question, against Mr. Crawford primarily rested in the testimony of the medical examiner, who insisted that, in fact, it was a homicide. And there were many other experts, as I recall from reading your book, who testified exactly the opposite, that it wasn't a homicide. Well, the defense did call an expert who testified from out of state, not from Louisiana, uh-huh. um, who did testify that it was not a that it was not a homicide, and that there was this thing that was going on with the baby that easily could explain the baby's death. But the jury disregarded that evidence and nonetheless convicted Mr. Crawford of capital murder. Um, the what's ironic is that later, many years later on appeal, the Louisiana Supreme Court wound up reversing Mr. Crawford's conviction because that very jury had been selected in a way that evinced racial bias by Mr. Cox, the the district attorney on the case. Um, And so that jury was not comprised of Mr. Crawford's peers and was certainly not an unbiased group of people who were evaluating the evidence. So uh, he is eventually, uh, his conviction is overturned. It's all been based on the one forensic scientist, and he is eventually out of prison. But this was for a crime that never actually happened. And so that that is kind of exactly what you're talking about. It could be, though, and you have some examples in the book of this happening to more than one person at once. And I, I found that fascinating, that this could actually be a kind of mass phenomenon, not just one defendant. Tell us about Tulia, Texas. Yeah, so Tulia, Texas is a a famous case just because it's so jaw-dropping in its scope. Um, In Tulia, Texas, it was this town, little town, and they brought in this white officer named Tom Coleman on special assignment. He was funded by some special narcotics funding from the federal government, and he swooped into town to fix a drug problem that most people didn't even know was happening. And he wound up arresting about 10% of the African-American population in Tulia, Texas. Now, the only evidence that he had against any of the people that he arrested was his own word. Didn't bother to get lab tests. He took notes on his arm that washed off in the shower. On his arm. Yeah, on his arm. No joke. No joke. In pen, he would just wash off in the shower. Um, And so when... 46 people wound up being arrested. And when they were brought before the judge, the first few defendants were like, we didn't have any drugs. We, we don't sell drugs. We don't use drugs. We don't, we, what's this drug thing? And they tried to fight the charges, but it was Tom Coleman's word against theirs. And the first four defendants who went to trial each lost. And when they were sentenced, they were sentenced to such extraordinarily long prison terms that the rest of the defendants pled guilty. Yeah, that was Texas at that time. They were giving out 99 and 100-year, 200-year sentences in some places. It was just ridiculous. 
even innocent defendants made a rational decision to plead guilty to felony drug crimes in order to avoid spending decades of their lives in prison. Well, ultimately it was revealed that Tom Coleman was just lying and all of those convictions were reversed, but not until many people had lost many years behind bars based on the say-so of uh, an officer who just manufactured crimes that never occurred. So, of course, the big question is why and how this happens. But, I mean, a, a kind of preliminary question is um, something you uncovered in your research, uh, that this is more likely to happen in certain kinds of cases than others. When we see wrongful convictions generally, we're usually talking, and, and the ones that get that get found out and overturned, we're usually talking about murders and sexual assaults. And not, not, not a small reason for that, of course, is that DNA is very important in those exonerations. These cases are different. There's no crime, so there can't be any DNA in the first place. What's the most common sorts of crimes you see in the no-crime wrongful conviction category? Yeah, so two primary categories are in child sex abuse cases um, and also in drug possession and drug sale cases. At least those, that's what's captured in the National Registry of Exonerations database. Um, and when you look at the race of the defendants involved in the child sex abuse context, it tends to be far more white defendants who are exonerated. In the drug possession and sales cases for crimes that never happened, it tends to be black defendants. So there is a difference in the impact of the type of crime based on race, um, and there certainly are differences based on the types of crimes in no crime cases versus actual crime cases. Wow. Let's take a quick break here. We're with Jessica Henry. She is the author of a new book called Smoke But No Fire, and this is about no crime wrongful convictions, if you can believe that. Stay with us. We'll be right back. everyone, David Harris here for Criminal Injustice. Our guest is Jessica Henry. Everyone wants to keep their home and family safe. Whether it's from a break-in, a fire, flooding, or a medical emergency, Simply Safe Home Security delivers award-winning 24-7 protection. With Simply Safe, you don't just get cameras and sensors, you get the best professional monitors in the business, they've got your back day and night, ready to send police, fire, EMTs, whatever you need when you need them most, straight to your door. Now, when my family had the job of selling our family home after it was empty, we knew we needed a security system we could count on. My brother, the electrician, the guy who's the most tech savvy of all of us, he recommended we go with Simply Safe, and boy, am I glad. We did. It was easy, it was affordable, and it was good. It performed, and we were safe. Simply Safe protects every inch of your home. You can set it up yourself in just 30 minutes. It's really easy. Then Simply Safe's professionals take over, monitoring your home 24 7 and ready to send help the moment they get an alarm. Plus, with Simply Safe, there's no long term contract. There are no hidden fees and no installation costs. 
Right now, my listeners get a free home security camera when you purchase a Simply Safe system at simplysafe.com/slash injustice. You also get a 60-day risk-free trial, so there's nothing to lose. Visit simplysafe.com slash injustice for your free security camera today. That's simplysafe, S-I-M-P-L-I-S-A-F-E. That's simplysafe.com slash injustice. She's the author of a new book called Smoke But No Fire, published by University of California Press in 2020. There's a link to it up on our website. And we're talking about no crime, wrongful convictions. People convicted of crimes they didn't commit and that never happened in the first place. And Ms. Henry tells us it could be as many as a third of all wrongful convictions of the ones that we know about. So let's talk now about why this happens. What are the causes of this? The first one that you talk about in the book is mislabeling. Tell us about mislabeling. What is that? Well, so mislabeling occurs when somebody takes a look at a naturally occurring event or an accident and labels it a crime. And so in the case that we started this interview talking about, that's exactly what happened. Somebody viewed Mr. Crawford's infant and said, oh, that baby must have been murdered, as opposed to looking at the objective scientific evidence that would have told a very different story. And we see this in cases where suicides are mislabeled a homicide, or in the first known wrongful conviction uh, involving a no crime case, two brothers were convicted of murdering their brother-in-law And as one of them was being dragged off to the gallows, it was revealed the brother-in-law was alive and well in New Jersey. So sometimes people are convicted Uh, of a murder. New Jersey, guilty again. (laughs) There we go. All roads (laughs) lead to New Jersey. Sometimes a person can be convicted um, of a murder that wasn't a murder at all. The person is actually alive. Um, But you also see sort of medical misdiagnoses, right? The medical profession, they're not trained to be crime investigators, but sometimes a doctor will come up with a diagnosis that is invalid, but say, oh, this was a crime. This, this, uh, you know, injury is the result of a human harm. And the system runs with it. So once someone mislabels an event as a crime, all of the actors get in line to make to do what they do best, which is to solve the crime by finding the perpetrator and then convicting the crime and uh, convicting the perpetrator and holding them accountable. So it's mislabeling something as a crime that is not. It's an accident. It's a terrible coincidence that this baby died. It's whatever it happens to be. uh, People stop looking for other explanations once it is labeled a crime. Are we are we talking about a kind of tunnel vision in operation here? Absolutely. Tunnel vision is one great way to describe what happens. And people bring their cognitive bias to the table. So it just gets passed along. So if a medical misdiagnosis of a crime occurs and they call the police, then the police, instead of saying like, are you sure about that? Or instead of doing their own investigation, they run with that label. And then it's kind of like a snowball. It just goes on and on, gaining steam. And everyone else steps into their their role in the system to do what they do best, which is to get convictions. And that's, everybody thinks of, well, this is my job. It's to catch the bad guys, put them in jail. Somebody said, this is a bad guy. So therefore, everybody assumes there's a crime when actually there wasn't in the first place. Another category that you put forth in the book is deliberate police misconduct. Now, I can envision this, and I'm sure a lot of people can, 
uh, as uh, police officers maybe planting evidence or something like that. That's got to be uh, one kind of uh, uh, thing that, that – but what's going on here? Why is there deliberate misconduct that actually does this? What, what did you find out about that category? So I actually break the police's responsibility uh, for no crime wrongful convictions into two kinds of different silos. And the first is what you were just talking about, blatant, overt criminal misconduct. Um, and we saw in Baltimore with the Baltimore gun te- gun oh, yes. trace task force um, that was charged with getting guns off the street. I mean, they literally were a band of robbers um, going around stealing money, stealing um, drugs from known drug sellers and then reselling them on the street. And in one terrible case, they had ski masks on and they ran up to a parked car where Omar Burley was sitting in his car with his cousin and they pulled their guns on Omar Burley. Omar Burley, thinking he was being robbed, took off down the street, crashed into a civilian and killed the civilian. Well, the police panicked that they were going to get exposed, planted a stunning amount of heroin in Mr. Burley's car. And he eventually was charged with drug possession and manslaughter and fearing for fearing that no jury would credit his word over sworn officers. He pled guilty. And it was only after the scandal broke and the scope of the, the egregious behavior by this task force came to light that Mr. Burley's conviction also was found to have been based on planted evidence. And it's not just Baltimore. It's in Chicago. It's in Philadelphia. It's in LA. We've seen tons of scandals involving officers who are just blatantly violating the law for their own benefit. So it's corruption. It's covering up their own misconduct. Do we also sometimes see what's sometimes called noble cause corruption? This is something I've studied with my own students. The idea that, yeah, we're lying, but it's for the greater good. Sure. When, when the police believe that someone has done something wrong, they will often cut corners to make a case stick. Um, and that's exactly a factor that can lead to no crime wrongful convictions. When they get fixated through tunnel vision on the idea that a crime has occurred and that this particular defendant committed that crime, even when the first assumption is false, it can lead to a whole set of circumstances where evidence is falsified, informants are coerced into testifying, and a case is built from whole cloth. But that's only one silo that the police contribute to no crime wrongful convictions in. The second is actually just set out by politicians often. It's this idea of being tough on crime. And when I was a public defender in the Bronx, uh, there was this policy, broken windows policing, quite famous. Oh, sure. Yeah. New York. Yeah. Get the little things so you you don't have the big things. Exactly. And one of the little things the police went after was trespassing cases. And they were over-policing poor communities of color, public housing projects in particular. And people who lived in the building who let's say were going upstairs and going downstairs and getting their mail but didn't have their identification on them when they were at their mailbox would get arrested for trespassing. Um, And this affected um, black and brown people. I think something like 95% of all people who were stopped under this program were Mm -hmm. stopped, uh, were black or brown. And People would be brought into the system, they would be booked, meaning they'd be fingerprinted, they would have their photos taken, and they would sometimes have to sit in a holding cell for hours or overnight, and they would eventually be brought in front of a judge. And I would say to them, please, if you stick this out with me, I will get this case dismissed. You were not trespassing. You were lawfully visiting your mom, or even worse, you live in that building. In your own building. Um, And they would often just 
take a plea to a misdemeanor because they needed to get home to their child or to their employers. You know, they didn't think they could get more time off to come back to court. Um, and, you know, misdemeanors matter. People are very dismissive of the they consequences do. of misdemeanors, but they're hugely impactful. Um, and so it would kill me to see this happen because these are examples of no crime cases, people being convicted of trespassing cases where there was no trespassing. And that those convictions build up like layers of sand at the bottom of the river and eventually you got a record and that can really hurt you down the road. So you've mentioned a couple of times that race plays a role here, maybe in some surprising ways. Are people of color, black and brown people, more likely to have these no-crime convictions? Or does it depend on the type? What can you tell us about race? Um, so the, the short answer is, yeah, I think it depends on the type of conviction. So again, in the context of drug cases, for instance, we know more about those um, it, in the National Registry of Exoneration database and maybe some other categories of cases. And there we see that black and brown people are more represented than white people. Yes. Um, but, I, you know, I think whenever, I think it's impossible to have any conversation about any aspect of criminal justice without talking about the impact of race because people of color are disparately represented across the board. Um, and that's true because of aggressive policing policies, and that's true because of the way that we proceed with criminal justice today. So it, I, I, see, I see that the impact of racism um, exists throughout the entire, I talk about it throughout the entire book. I don't think you can get around that. You speak the truth. <laughs> this is, I mean, I, I tell people students, I tell fellow teachers, you're teaching criminal law, criminal justice courses. If you're not talking about race, you are not giving a full view because it's there at every step. And it's not just race too, it's also poverty. I mean, it's, it's really the confluence of factors because um, in Mr. Crawford's case, race was quite overt. I mean, from again, you hear it in the dispatches disparaging, dismissive comments right from the outset. Um, but you also see it in other cases where the existence of an expert would have made all the difference. But because there's no funding for experts, defense lawyers don't seek them. Um, and that reflects issues around class, right? I mean, poor people do not get the same quality of justice that people who can pay for it do. So true. Now, there's a set of actors here we haven't touched on yet. We've talked a lot about the police and their role. We've talked about forensic scientists and their role, but I think lawyers have something to answer for here too. And and I give you a lot of credit. Um, you talk about prosecutors, defense lawyers, and judges and their responsibility in no crime convictions. Talk about that. Well, let's start with the prosecutors. One, you know, prosecutors are supposed to be ministers of justice. That's how they're described right. by the Supreme Court in lofty language. Um, mm -hmm. And they do a lot of basic jobs that they have to do up front before a case proceeds. One of them is when the police arrest somebody, they're supposed to cross-check the factual basis for the arrest. And if there's not enough evidence to proceed, they're supposed to dismiss that case. So again, using just the basic trespass case, if somebody's got ID showing they live in the building, that should be dismissed immediately. But so often it wasn't. Um, and so often prosecutors did not vet those initial arrest charges. They just moved forward with the case as though everything was fine. Um, that's a problem. Asking for very high bail when they know the defendant is poor, 
is a problem. Um, but then it gets even sort of more wonky. Once they start to build their case and they realize that there is a lack of evidence because the crime never happened in the mm -hmm. first place, instead of doing again the right thing, which is to look into dismissing the case, they do other things like find jailhouse informants to come forward and testify, even though they know these informants have everything to gain and nothing to lose from lying. Or they'll seek out a forensic expert to tell a narrative that is just not rooted in science and they'll present it as such. Or they'll allow a police officer to testify to a story that maybe doesn't make sense. Or more egregiously, and perhaps more famously, they'll fail to turn over evidence that they are required to oh, under the yes. Constitution. Um, that's called Brady material. The prosecution is required to turn over evidence that's exculpatory, evidence that you know, in some way either shows the defendant is innocent or relates to the credibility of their own witnesses. And they fail to do so so often that one judge has called it, has declared there's an epidemic of Brady violations in the country. And one of the reasons the prosecution gets to do all of these things is because they have absolute immunity. They, you cannot hold a prosecutor accountable for what they do in the guise and the official um, role of, as a prosecutor. And people don't realize that. There's been a lot of conversation today about qualified immunity with police officers. It's wonderful when I bring up the issue of qualified immunity in my classes now, my students know they what know that know it. Mm -hmm. But everybody's jaw kind of, people are just shocked when they hear that prosecutors have absolute immunity. I mean, not even surgeons have absolute Im immunity, but prosecutors do. So I think prosecutors play an enormously important role. Oh, and one final thing that they do that I still, I, I have such a tough time with this one. They refuse to admit after they get a conviction, even when faced with unbelievably compelling evidence that the person that they convicted is innocent, yes. they often refuse to admit that they were wrong. Um, and so they'll do everything. Like there's this case, um, Gerald Dewey, he, he and his father were convicted of rape and sent to prison and DNA ex exonerated them. And it turns out that the rape had never occurred. Um, the, the victim, the so-called victim had fabricated the entire incident. Um, and when the, D, when the prosecutor was presented with this DNA that conclusively established that they, in fact, had nothing to do with anything, um, the prosecutor said, oh, no, we're going to retry this case. And they went forward with a completely different theory that Gerald Dewey had, in fact, raped her but hadn't ejaculated. Right. Mm -hmm. um, just totally changed their theory of the case. He was acquitted within, you know, right after that trial, the juries found him not guilty, but he and his father had both served something like seven or eight years in prison. Yes. So if the prosecutors have a lot to answer for, what about judges? What should be their role in these cases? What do you find that they are doing that is contributing to this problem? Yeah, you know, one of the things I think is really interesting is that judges tend to get a pass in the wrongful convictions literature. They're just not the subject of a lot of discussion. And I find that troubling because judges are important players. They are present in every single case that yep. results in a wrongful conviction. You can't have a conviction without a judge. So when things go wrong, a judge is there too. And Judges, for instance, are the gatekeepers. They're the evidentiary gatekeepers in the courtroom. And so if the prosecution wants to present evidence that is unreliable or inaccurate, or they want to present forensic science that is not rooted, in fact, in science, 
the judge is supposed to say, sorry, prosecutor, this doesn't come into my courtroom, but they so rarely do. So they allow in unreliable evidence that can result in someone's conviction. Um, they will accept guilty pleas without really ensuring there's a factual basis. They, they just kind of accept it as part, part for the course and don't do their diligence that they're supposed to do as judges. Um, they themselves sometimes exhibit bias and bigotry. They're just people. Um, and so there's a lot of ways in which judges compound the problem, either by not doing their job or by bringing their own stuff into the courtroom without being aware of how that's impacting the way they do their jobs. Not to mention the fact that in a lot of states, judges are elected. And so instead yes. of being these objective, neutral arbiters who really are focused solely on the parties in their courtroom, they're always playing to a second audience, which is the electorate. And that's a problem in jurisdictions where being a good judge is the equivalent of being tough on crime. Yes. So if you had your way and could make some changes to the system, what would be your top two or three ideas? Oh, goodness. Well, there's a couple of different... So in the area of forensic science specifically, um, we were moving in the right direction. President Obama had created a national forensic science commission and they were gonna try to create national standards. Um, right now, labs are often affiliated with police precincts or and they view themselves as part of the police and prosecutions team. Um, I'd like to see independent labs and I'd like to see national standards for those labs and national accreditation standards for scientists. Because one thing we haven't talked about is forensic misconduct that occurs when forensic scientists are just making up their lab findings, right? Dry I mean, labbing. Exactly. We saw that in Texas. We saw that in Boston um, where they just didn't do their jobs and claim they did, resulting in the conviction of innocent people for crimes that weren't supported by evidence. Um, so in the area of forensic science, I do think there's quite a bit of work to be done that's very concrete. Um, in the area of policing, you know, I often say the, the police culture needs to be shifted. And at the academy, when you've got these young folks coming in, they are taught that their loyalty, first and foremost, has to run to the brothers and sisters in that room. Um, and what that translates into is that if you rat out your fellow officer for engaging in misconduct, you are violating that blue wall. You are doing something wrong, not the person engaging in the misconduct. That needs to change. Training needs to change from the very moment someone goes into the academy where officers need to be taught that their loyalty lies with the communities they serve. And that being a good officer means calling out other officers' misconduct. And we're seeing some of that, right? There's this program that is being piloted called EPIC, um, yes. that ethical policing is courageous. And that started in Louisiana, it's over in Baltimore, a number of other cities are piloting it, where officers who call out each other's misconduct are actually rewarded. And it seems to be ha having a positive effect. I don't wanna overstate that, but we do need to change it. And that needs to be embraced, not only at the training at the bottom, but also by the superiors at the top. Um, you only gave me three choices, right? So one other one area. More. Pick one. <laughs> um, well, I would like to see a renewed conversation around, around prosecutors' absolute immunity. It's just a very strange standard, and I don't understand why it exists. And I'd like to see, as we talk about changing qualified immunity for police officers, I'd like to see us considering 
all of the different standards of immunity that we give to people in the criminal justice system and rethink that as a as a whole as opposed to just sort of looking at qualified immunity for police officers i'd like to extend that conversation to absolute immunity for prosecutors and then we didn't talk about defense lawyers and i know this is number four but i would also think um, i also would advocate for increasing funding for public defender offices and fifth if i may um, <laughs> decriminalizing low-level offenses because one of the reasons the system goes so terribly wrong is because everyone is on a treadmill that's moving so quickly and if we could get a lot of these cases that don't need to be labeled criminal in the first place out of the system we might actually be able to say like what did happen here and was this really a crime and should this person ever have been charged with this event that wasn't criminal at all that's Jessica Henry. She is a professor in the Department of Justice Studies at Montclair State University in New Jersey, and she's the author of Smoke But No Fire, Convicting the Innocent of Crimes That Never Happened, published in 2020 by the University of California Press. We've got a link to the book up on our website. Jessica Henry, thanks so very much for being my guest here. Thank you so much. It really was a delight. Thank you. Stick around for Lawyers Behaving Badly. Everyone wants to keep their home and family safe. Whether it's from a break-in, a fire, flooding, or a medical emergency, Simply Safe Home Security delivers award-winning 24-7 protection. With Simply Safe, you don't just get cameras and sensors, you get the best professional monitors in the business. They've got your back day and night ready to send police, fire, EMTs, whatever you need, when you need them most, straight to your door. Now, when my family had the job of selling our family home after it was empty, we knew we needed a security system we could count on. My brother, the electrician, the guy who's the most tech savvy of all of us, he recommended we go with Simply Safe, and boy, am I glad we did. It was easy, it was affordable, and it was good. It performed and we were safe. Simply Safe protects every inch of your home. You can set it up yourself in just 30 minutes. It's really easy. Then Simply Safe's professionals take over, monitoring your home 24/7 and ready to send help the moment they get an alarm. Plus with Simply Safe there's no long-term contract. There are no hidden fees and no installation costs. Right now, my listeners get a free home security camera when you purchase a Simply Safe system at simplysafe.com/injustice. You also get a 60-day risk-free trial, so there's nothing to lose. Visit simplysafe.com/injustice for your free security camera today. That's simplysafe, S I M P L I S-A-F-E, that's simplysafe.com slash injustice. And now let's wind it up like we do on every episode with another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly. And this edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly features lawyer Vincenzo Field of Chicago, Illinois. 
It seems that back in 2015, Lawyer Field, in a case against the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Northern District of Illinois, he needed an extension of time for discovery. In fact, he needed and asked for a four-month extension. Kind of a long extension, but not unheard of, depending on the complexity of the case. Why did Lawyer Field need an extension? He had cancer and was having tumors removed from his stomach and abdomen. Oh, well, not good. Then, in 2016, Lawyer Field again needed a discovery extension on a different case. Reason given this time to opposing counsel? His son had stomach cancer and was going to have surgery to remove part of his stomach and GI tract. Oh man, what can you say? Unluckiest family maybe ever? Well, no, because as it turned out, no one in the family had cancer, stomach or otherwise. These reasons giving for getting discovery extensions were lies. All of it was untrue, and when a partner in Lawyer Field's law firm found out, Lawyer Field had to file a motion with the court to correct, to tell the court that he had lied, and he also had to send the Illinois disciplinary authorities a letter telling them what he had done. But wait, there's more, just like in those late-night TV commercials. Way back when he was just a person applying to law school to be a lawyer, he took the LSAT. He didn't do so well. Not unusual. So he took it a second time, and he did better. Also not unusual. In his application to the University of Chicago Law School, he gave an explanation for why his second score was much better than his first score. Why? Well, when he took the first test... You guessed it, he was undergoing treatment for, wait for it, stomach cancer. Well, with all of this stomach cancer, those Illinois disciplinary authorities got to work. Eventually, Lawyer Field saw a physician who diagnosed mild depression, a recurrent major depressive disorder, and a personality disorder. The disciplinary report said that Lawyer Field had, quote, significant anxiety and sadness, with a feeling of, quote, panic and hopelessness over his inability to meet deadlines. Testimony from the physician convinced the disciplinary board that Lawyer Field is a, quote, caring individual who is concerned for others and cares about his clients. While the disciplinary board had doubts about Lawyer Field's ability to practice responsibly, that caring nature convinced them to just suspend him from practice, not disbar him permanently, so he may come back to practice again. Hey, Disciplinary Board of Illinois, you missed it. Lawyer Field's problem isn't his panic over deadlines. Hell, I sometimes have panic over deadlines. We all do. His problem is that he lies about it to other lawyers, to courts, even to get into law school. And that wasn't about any deadline. You've made the wrong call here. If this man practices again and lies to someone... It's on you, folks. 
But of course, you could avoid this by doing the right thing now and forcing Lawyer Field to get into another line of work. That's this edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly, and that wraps up another episode of Criminal Injustice. Subscribe to Criminal Injustice with our RSS feed if you haven't already, and share us all over social media. Give us a review there, please. A good review will help people find us. Check out our website. That's www.criminalinjusticepodcast.com for all of our interviews, our news items, and more stories of lawyers behaving badly. Got a question about the criminal justice system? Well, want to ask Dave? Go to our Ask Dave tab on the website and I'll see if I can answer it on the show. Remember that we are listener-supported. If you like what you hear and you want to help, do that at patreon.com slash criminalinjustice. We really do appreciate it. Thanks for listening. I'm David Harris, and I'll be back with you next time. Criminal Injustice is written by David Harris and produced by Josh Rollerson. Find show notes and past episodes at criminalinjusticepodcast.com.